0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind the scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. So on his cross, I asked him where, when he had come up with some ideas where he was trying to rehab himself, and they went nuts. And while the lawyer was lying to the judge about where he had been, simultaneously I asked the question to the witness and he told the judge. That, that lawyer had been out in L.A. meeting with him, going over some new studies to rehab him. Please rise.
1: Court is now in session. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, this is Steve Lowry here with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how is uh, Atlanta today?
2: It's good. I mean, I haven't, I don't really know. I feel like I I've, I've didn't really go outside. Although I did, I did go outside because I went to CVS and got a flu shot.
1: Oh, very good. That's always important.
2: Am I early to get a flu shot or is it time
1: I for I a mine. bit okay. I, I go to my of a little bit of a little bit of a little bit they a always give me a nice sticker and then I get to go into the treasure box afterwards.
2: Oh, okay. Nice. See, I just got, I went for like nothing and I got upsold to a flu shot at CVS. <laughs> <laughs> right, right,
1: exactly. You were just wandering around the street and they a how about a flu shot? <laughs> I, mean,
2: I was not in there. I did not go there for a flu shot, but I'm glad I got it over with.
1: Well, oh, very nice. Very nice. Well, I hope uh, we'll ask our uh, guest if he's had his flu shot. I wanted to uh, introduce our uh, guest from Austin, Texas. We have Brad Beckworth on today. Brad is a partner at Nix Patterson in Austin, and you can look up Brad at Knicks, Nix, N-I-X, NixLaw.com. Brad, how are you doing today? Doing
0: great. Thanks for having me. No, I have not had a flu shot my <laughs> I'm trying to make sure that there's no Johnson & Johnson influence.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, you you really have to watch out. I mean, after we're, what we're going to be talking about today is uh, is the very first opioid case to go to trial. Uh, and uh, from what I can tell, it looks like you had just about every pharmaceutical manufacturer as a defendant in the case. Um, so yeah, you probably really have to be careful when you go and uh, ask for any type of pharmaceutical.
0: Yeah, well, I do need to be careful, <laughs> and I am. <laughs> right.
1: Well, Brad, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. Uh, as I said, Brad is a uh, partner at Nix Patterson. It's, it's in Austin, Texas. Uh, Brad is a graduate of uh, Baylor University and Texas A&M. Uh, and he's been admitted to the bar of New York, Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. Uh, Brad clerked for Richard Shell in the Eastern District of uh, Texas uh, District Court. Is that the, uh, is that the rocket docket? Uh,
0: it, it was, um, I clerked for judge shell in Beaumont, Texas, in South okay. Texas, and that was, uh, back then they had something called the plan and a lot of younger lawyers won't know what that was, but in, in my day, it's kind of funny to say that cause I still feel like I'm 18, but back <laughs> then, uh, the late nineties, they had this program where you were assigned a track in federal court. And for most cases you got, uh, Three depositions, oh, max. There were no requests for production. You had to turn over everything that supported or hurt your case. Wow! Way. And there were no expert depositions. So you got an expert report, and that was it. The, the first expert I ever put under oath was during a trial.
1: Oh my gosh!
0: <laughs> file a case and get, and get to trial. In, you know, ten months. Um, but as the patent docket rocketed forward. The there were the the new version of the uh, rule 26 and the pretrial procedure in federal courts was a big time response to what was happening down there.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Like, well, I, I remember hearing about that, about how that that's where a lot of the uh, uh patent and intellectual property litigation went because you knew you could get it to trial fast.
0: Yeah. The Eastern District of Texas is very long. It runs from the northern northeast border in Texarkana, all the way south to, you know, Port Arthur, Texas. So um, there's a lot of, lot of venue in there, and over the years, it's been a pretty active trial docket and the patent docket. Um, my firm had the tobacco litigation in Texarkana, and Texarkana and Marshall became national, nationally very prominent uh, for patent litigation. Still off.
1: Right, right, yeah. Well, and, and that that must explain why I was looking at your uh, at your CV or your at your bio, and uh, and you have extensive trademark litigation, including uh, some great uh, uh, settlements that resulted out of that. And um, and I should also mention you're an adjunct professor at Baylor. Uh, you have also. Uh, participated in a case it, where you represented the Choctaw Nation against the Department of Interior uh, and secured a $186 million settlement. Uh, yearly, you're, you're named as a super lawyer. And uh, and then I think, you know, what I think a lot of our listeners would find very interesting is you represented Johnny Manziel uh, when there was an NCA enforcement action and then, then went on to you and your team represented Johnny uh, when he was drafted. Uh, overall number six into the NFL.
0: We did. That was a, a very fun and uh, different thing to do, but I'm happy to talk about what I can talk about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and I should mention, so both you and Johnny are are, are graduates from Texas A&M, uh, and that didn't stop you from being involved in some litigation that I, it sounds like Texas A&M would have been involved in, too.
0: You know, that one was, if you want to talk about it now, it's great. <laughs> um, it, it's very – it's very interesting how that works, you know. In a uh, stepping back, the NCA is kind of like a Johnson and Johnson or a pharmaceutical company. They've got all the money and all the power. Yeah. And their typical approach is, if a kid's alleged to have been involved in something that violates their handbook, uh, they'll come in and they'll tell the kid, "Look, coach needs to see you. Uh, no big deal. Just step down there. He's in the boardroom or the." His office. And when the kid walks down there, what he doesn't know is that the NCAA has been investigating perhaps for months to, you know, three or four months, has their investigation complete. And uh, when he he or she walks into that room, uh, depending on how high profile the athlete is, there's a bunch of suits sitting there. And um, generally, the, the college or university has already hired outside counsel. There's a few law firms that do it. And they're aligned to protect themselves. They'll throw the kid under the bus if they need to. May have already cut a deal with the NCAA. And the kid walks in and they tell tell him, you know, you need to sit down here and answer our questions. Um, and if you do, everything will be fine. Well, as you know, in college athletics, a high percentage of the athletes come from less privileged than others and may not know a lawyer certainly can't afford one. Um, And they walk in there and and it's over before it starts. The NCAA has a handbook that's hundreds of pages and you can be disbarred for life for intentionally or accidentally just giving them bad information. Uh, It it happened to uh, Des Bryant at Oklahoma state's a great example. Right. So Johnny's instance um, he got that call. He walked down there and, they have. We're going to have them sign a form, and it said, "You have a right to a lawyer," <laughs> and so he knew the guy to call, and um, he did. He called us. So, my law firm took an approach to that piece of litigation that was, uh, sorry, to that enforcement action that we we took a very commercial, high-profile approach to it. And NSA had never really experienced that. They're used to picking on kids, not yeah, really. Like ours. Uh <laughs> but. Uh, you asked about A&M, so A&M was very unique in that regard. Um, the chancellor, John Sharp, is a wonderful, wonderful guy, uh, very astute uh, leader and former, uh, in fact, he was the last uh, Democrat elected to a statewide office in Texas. And he stood side by side with Johnny and had his back the whole way. And um, he and his office were very fair and reasonable in their approach and did not throw him under the bus. And because of that, we had a very, very good outcome.
1: Yeah, well, that's great. Well, and, and you know, it does get into all these uh, things, which we won't touch on this show, but about, you know, the power that the NCAA has and how much money they make off of these kids and how the kids uh, don't get paid anything for, you know, even though they're making millions of dollars off their names, especially somebody like Johnny Manziel.
0: Yeah, and there's, you know, there's legislation being proposed in uh, California about it, and there, there definitely needs to be a solution. Um, I don't think a lot of folks realize that when a kid goes to college, yes, she gets a scholarship and that's better than most of us get. But like for me, I got a full scholarship to law school, but I was able to work at very prestigious law firms in the summer and make a lot of money. Uh, college football player can't do that. And so you have kids that, especially they're coming from, you know, impoverished background, they can't even afford a car, much less gas, uh, for their parents to come watch them play and um, can't take a date out, don't have time to get a job because it's a full-time job being a student athlete. So it's, it's a messed up system. Uh, yeah. Football really is the worst of it. You know, um, there's a lot of other sports, baseball, golf, that are more for kids that come from a little different background. Um, Right, right. They don't don't get the same issues that the football kids get, I don't think so. Something's got to be done.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's been a problem for a long time. Well, but we didn't come here to solve the NCAA's problems. Um, So, what we're talking about today, uh, Brad, is uh, you and your team tried the very first case uh, involving the opioid litigation. Uh, The name of the case is the state of Oklahoma. Uh, represented by uh, the Attorney General Mike Hunter versus uh, really all of the uh, pharmaceutical companies, but this particular case went to trial against Johnson & Johnson & Janssen Pharmaceuticals. Um, I should say prior to the trial, uh, your team had reached a settlement with Purdue Pharma uh, for $270 million and with TEVA for $85 million on behalf of the state of Oklahoma. Uh, but this case was a bench trial against Johnson & Johnson uh, for their involvement in the opioid litigation, uh, and it resulted in a $572 million award uh, that was a—it uh, was— uh, a, awarded by the judge in the case, this was a bench trial. And so that'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but basically this was brought under Oklahoma's public nuisance law and, and Brad, I'll have you explain that a little bit more, but essentially uh, was a, an action to abate the nuisance uh, uh, that had been caused by the opioid crisis um, over the past, you uh, um, really 15 to 20 years uh that was brought on by companies like johnson and johnson and where they were basically um um, marketing in a in a fraudulent misleading way and uh and getting doctors to over prescribe and to prescribe too much of opioids and, and started this addiction crisis. And, uh, and I think the evidence that I saw in the case, uh, you all had shown that there was 4,653 deaths in Oklahoma from 2007 to 2017, uh, related to opioid, uh, overdoses. And then, um, I think you had 28,000 uh, um, admissions to hospitals uh, related to that. And then also a number of cases uh, for neonatal abstinence syndrome, which are the tragic cases when uh, the babies uh, are, are born where their uh, mother has been addicted to opioids and they're, they're born, born uh, going through those withdrawal symptoms. Uh, but essentially, you, you brought that case over uh, almost a two-month period. And um, and resulted in, like I said, a 572 million dollar award against Johnson and Johnson, and um, really just uh, uh, very you know very thorough lawyering. The the judge I read the order uh, really went through all of the facts and laid out um, you know all of the different marketing schemes that have been gone on by Johnson and Johnson. And I guess one thing that I didn't understand was that not only did Johnson and Johnson sell their own products. That, which I think included Duragesic, Altram, and some others, but that they were also the supplier of the, uh, uh of essentially the, the active ingredient, uh, for opioids to all of the other manufacturers and were the number one supplier of that. And I, I, I never understood that until I, uh, was reading about your case, Brad.
0: Yeah. So let's come back to that. That's a really important point about what they actually did. Um, but just give you a little background here, we, we do work for the state. We still have ongoing, the case is ongoing. Um, Mike Hunter is the attorney general. Uh, he was uh, appointed uh, by Governor Fallon and then ran and won full election. Uh, he hired us to do this case because Oklahoma has just been devastated by the opioid crisis. You hear a lot about Appalachia and some of the s- states on the East Coast, but Oklahoma, sadly, is just, really, really been hit hard. And General Hunter, when he hired us, um, it was was my law firm, but also our our partners in the case, uh, Mike Burridge and Reggie Witten, Witten Burridge out of Oklahoma City.
1: Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need?
2: Really great lawyers like me.
1: That is exactly right. (laughs) Really great lawyers like Yvonne. They also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases?
2: I think I know where you're going with this and I'm gonna say our website.
1: (laughs) Our website is a big one. And the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does.
2: Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious.
1: I I definitely need some reputation management. I'd like to find out exactly what that does.
2: We need to look into that one a bit more. (laughs)
1: Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital Law Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com.
0: If you do a little research on him, Mike Burge was the first uh, Native American federal judge uh, who retired and has a very active practice, um, and Reggie Wood and his partner, both of, both of them are in the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. Uh, not, not as lawyers, but as people, right, right? which is great. And so they were our, our full partners in the case and uh, mentors of mine for many, many years. Uh, General Hunter asked us to commit to get that case to trial as fast as we could. And I think what a lot of folks don't realize is that we filed the lawsuit on my birthday, June 30th, 2017. We completed trial July 15th, 2019, which is unheard of. And due to a lot of procedural moves, uh, we really only had about a year to complete discovery. So if you kind of unwind that, we, we prosecuted three major pharmaceutical cases on behalf of the state with a time period of more than 20 years, uh, simultaneously to completion. Um, something nobody had ever done one of those cases all the way through. And we did three of them. Um, so we can talk about it here in a minute, but it's a pretty incredible story about what you went through to answer your last question. The, the big thing about Johnson and Johnson, they, they tell, uh, the media, they, tell judges that they're a a small-time player in the opioid crisis, that they were just a 1% of the market. And that's not even true for their own drugs, the drugs that they manufactured and marketed themselves. they're, They're more than 1%. But what they leave out is that they were the supplier of the American opioid industry. Um, and we proved at trial, a judge found in our favor that they, they supplied more than 60% of active pharmaceutical ingredients, it goes by API, um, for many of the drug companies. So, for example, with Purdue, you heard about OxyContin. Mm-hmm. OxyContin is a brand name to a drug that's <clears throat> derivative is OxyCodone. Well, Johnson & Johnson's subsidiaries made that oxycodone for many 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 years. And so we we got to the bottom of that, peeled back all the layers of the onion and proved that J&J was right there from the start. So, you know, that that was a major major part of the case and it's a major part of the story that needs to be told.
2: Well, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it, but but talking about Johnson and Johnson being there from the start, one of the things that I had learned through reading um, through the materials you sent in the opening and the closing was this sort of – I think I had always thought of it as that they were they were putting these drugs out there and marketing the drugs, and then they knew that they were bad and they kept doing it. I didn't really know about the piece of sort of creating creating the need in the first place to then, um, you know, supply the solution to that problem. I, so I didn't really – Naively, I guess I didn't know about that that they had kind of created the market for the for the opioids in the first place, yeah. at least this type
0: sure we we had a, a historian uh, by the name of David Cortwright, who was actually the i think the first or second witness we called, and he has written several books he's just brilliant on the issue of uh, heroin and opium in the United States but he talked about this this idea of uh, narcotic conservatism that we used an image of it that we had basically a dam up in 1996 that throughout history um, anytime man has had a heavy supply of opium including in the U.S. you've had a crisis of addiction crime, death, and other related diseases and we were in the late 1990s, well, really starting in 92, 93, Americans had pain, America had been through multiple wars, but what we didn't have outside of a few pockets dealing with heroin is we didn't have a bunch of folks addicted to prescription pain pills. This phenomenon that we have today did not exist. And, you know, it started, everybody thought it started with Purdue, that in the 95, 96 period of time, Purdue started actively marketing OxyContin as a safe alternative. And if you, if you ever get a doctor alone from that time period, um, especially a general practitioner, they'll tell you that people started coming and tell them, hey, this is a safe thing to use. Give it to the grandma who's got back pain and she's gonna be okay. Um, Purdue has always gotten to blame for all of it because it's been low hanging fruit. And the federal government went after them a lot of documents were made public. And so the media and lawyers could look at those and go, man, they are really bad people. Um, but the Johnson and Johnson story was never told. What happened with Johnson and Johnson was that they bought a uh, operation in uh, Tasmania called Tasmanian alkaloids to help them uh, meet their demand for their Tylenol with codeine products. And sometime in the 1994 time period they got together uh, with Purdue to come up with a new type of poppy plant Um, and ironically enough when they created this new poppy plant they named it the Norman poppy Uh, and our trial just happened to be in Norman Oklahoma (laughs) Uh, well and and
1: I saw that you uh, you retitled it to the mutant poppy
0: it was a mutant poppy because it was extremely potent and they had two main issues down there. Um, one, uh, agriculturally, they didn't have a great growing uh, operation, and two, they didn't have enough land. And so this poppy, uh, they could do more with less. And so we uncovered documents that per, that Johnson & Johnson actually gave the Johnson Medal to one of its scientists for inventing this poppy. And you can see it in the trial, but. They, they said in writing that this invention led to the proliferation and growth that enabled the growth of oxycodone in America. Well, oh, oxycodone, but oxycodone. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot more to that, but that's, that's what happened. And then Johnson & Johnson and Purdue ended up working together to get supply agreements for long-term supply. So throughout the trial, we had this issue of, you know, J&J was out there not just promoting their fentanyl product, um, But they were promoting opioids as safe and non-addictive. And it'd be kind of like Coca-Cola marketing all soft soft drinks uh, and wanting Pepsi and Dr. Pepper to do well. Um, And that's what they did.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of this, uh, the evidence in this case reminded me of uh, some of the tobacco cases that we've talked about before, that just this marketing, uh, you know, sort of, a, a, you know, all fronts attack by Johnson & Johnson to convince doctors that, that not only was this safe, not only was it uh, not, not addictive, but that if they weren't prescribing these drugs, they were actually harming their patients who were in pain and needed this. And then I saw that, you know, they had come up with these terms of like pseudo addiction uh, or don't get, you know, uh, uh, don't get into the uh, addiction ditch where, um, you know, where, you know, if doctors didn't want to sell and the pseudo addiction was that if uh, even if a patient comes back and is asking for more and more pains, it, it doesn't mean they're really addicted. And then, of course, you know, doing all of the medical literature funding that uh, that we've seen throughout uh, a lot of the pharmaceutical litigation. Uh, yeah. Talk talk about some of that marketing plan and how that really drove, um, you know, what happened here.
0: Well, it's still going on today. Um, Johnson and Johnson has been out on the stump since the trial, just denying everything, ridiculing the judge. And, you know, they're lying They're It's, I, I like the phrase lying liars and that's what they are. Um, most people are scared of them. We're not, but here's the truth. Um, Johnson and Johnson and Jansen, uh, had their own scientific review board come in. And once OxyContin was starting to show up in the uh, certain states, West Virginia, uh, Virginia, others, of having hot spots where crime and addiction were really getting out of hand, where babies were being born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, um, a lot of questions started being asked. And Janssen brought in their own group of scientific advisors to look at all these problems. And they were told point blank. Number one, if you supply enough of any opiate product, you're going to have addiction abuse and diversion going to happen. The more you supply, the more problems you're going to have because mankind can't handle it 2 don't ever market your drugs as being better than another or less abuse prone or less addictive because it's not true. And one of the third things was if we ever get the volume of our uh, drugs up as high as say Oxycontin or some others, you're gonna have the same problems. And then they also had this federal database called the DAWN, the Drug Awareness uh, Network, where J&J and Jansen were out using some statistics to say that uh, their drugs weren't causing problems And their own advisor said, it's terribly misleading. Don't ever do it. Um, Well, that document never saw the light of day. Jansen and their marketing teams ignored it all and did. We went one by one down the things they were told not to do, and they did them all. Um, You know, thank God for this court because one of the things that we felt was so important in this trial was whether we won or lost, we wanted to get the information out to the public. So that folks would stop just looking at Purdue, and start looking at these other companies, um, because everything's always been under seal. So we got all this information out to in the public, and they just couldn't run from it. Um, one of the other things we did was really amazing in their marketing was, um, Janssen sent their own sales reps into doctors' offices in Oklahoma. I, I think we had 140 or 150 thousand times. And for many years, they actually kept pretty detailed records of what was said. And we put into evidence uh, all of those notes. And there were hundreds and hundreds of examples we showed the court where they went into doctors' offices and did exactly what their own scientific team said not to do. And then, you know, strangely enough, around 2009, after Purdue and uh, one of Teva's companies got convicted, um, Johnson and Johnson stopped writing down what was happening in these meetings. We showed <laughs> tens of thousands of blank notes. You'd see that they met, but uh, they wouldn't wouldn't say what happened. And we were able to show that in the pill mills of Oklahoma um, where J&J was trying to blame the state or blame bad doctors, um, you know, we had some folks that have been under investigation that we showed J&J was in their offices 80, 90 times in a, in a year. Uh, at the same time, some really bad stuff was going on. So, you know, it was a long trial, but the short of it is one of the great things that's happened is all of this evidence is out there. Um, And one of our key witnesses, um, Andrew Claudine, who's a doctor and really the the person at the forefront of bringing attention to this crisis and the pharmaceutical industry's role in it. Uh, He told the court, he said, you know, by making this, information public for public health researchers and marketing experts to just look at and see what happened. You've changed the world, uh, no matter what your verdict is. Um, so we were really, really happy and proud of that. Proud yeah, of
2: that. I mean, it's, I I guess one of my questions is just knowing how much that you specifically were able, you know, to talk about, um in your opening and your closing, but but how much other evidence that you had, and then hearing from you, which I did not realize, what a short discovery period that you had. How did you and your team sort of approach getting your arms around this and and making it um, clean? I mean, you, you know, you had a judge, you had a bench trial, but still to have that much information and be able to put together, you know, the picture and the story how did you, do, how did you do it?
0: <laughs> well, we learned from history. Uh, it's a pretty, to me, it's the thing I'm probably most proud of how we did it. Uh, you know, my law firm right at the end, at the beginning of my career was the end of the tobacco litigation and they had a similar issue back then. They had a federal judge, David was great judge ordered them to trial, held everybody's feet to the fire and, uh, Five or four lawyers at my firm, uh, we were really small back then. And then each of the other firms rented out a, uh, was like a mental health rehabilitation hospital. In Texas, <laughs> and they lived there in a dormitory style for the better part of a year. Wow. And then a few lawyers stayed back at our office to, uh, just keep the lights on, which was hard to do. Yeah. Really? And, um, you know, going against the tobacco industry their their deal was delay. And, uh, Expense. You know, the more they could throw at this team, the, the harder it would be to get it to trial. Um, but they dropped everything they had back then, and um, they pushed it, uh, and they won. Um, the tobacco litigation in Texas ended because the judge ordered a trifurcated trial where the issue of racketeering, not causation or damages, but whether racketeering occurred, was going to be the first issue tried they ran it up to the fifth circuit on appeal on a mandamus and lost and they couldn't try the case because of that. So, go back forward 20 years. Uh one of my partners uh was a younger lawyer on that case at the time, uh Jeff Angelovich, and if you ever watched the movie The Insider, uh Jeff's witness in tobacco was uh, uh Wygan, Jeffrey Wygant.
2: Okay. So yeah. He, he had
0: lived this once before. So, when we got this case, um we were given a mandate by our client on the state before they hired us. We want a firm that can try it. We want a firm that's been through it before. Uh, We want a firm that knows Oklahoma, which we do. And of course, Whitman Burge is the best firm in Oklahoma. And we want folks that will drop everything in their lives to get this case to trial because we're losing three people a day to this crisis. Hmm. So what we did is we filed it and we were hammering the defendants and they removed the case um in june of 2018 it was A fraudulent removal we had a contractual agreement with them that they would not remove the case but they did it anyway wow and they did it because we had six depositions lined up which were the first depositions of the case so we fought that like crazy i mean they they filed their motion we responded the next day they filed their response we were filed a reply the next day we were doing everything we could to get it out of federal court because what they were trying to do was transfer it to the MDL in Cleveland and put us way back. The opioid industry's worst fear is a trial. So in August of twenty what year was that? 2018, we got the case back and we had taken no depositions. Wow. So we had to go back to court and fight. And we had a discovery deadline of March 15th. So however long that is, August, mid-August to March 15th is not a lot of time. Yeah, really. And um, what we did was my team fluctuates between 10 and 12 lawyers. And we just basically moved to Oklahoma. Um, We started going four days a week and then ended up being seven. Um, We put Five of us lived in an office. We put twin mattresses in the offices.
1: Oh um, this is going to mattresses, right?
0: Yeah, but we, when I say we lived in office, we <laughs> lived in the office. Yeah. But what we did was we had a living, breathing organism that was our trial team. And the way it would happen is we would get up, go work out about 530, start working about seven. Um, sometimes we got seven, eight depositions going on a day. Most of them were in Oklahoma. Um, We would meet about 5.30 or 6 at the end of the day, eat dinner together. We had everything brought in um, and talk about what was happening and reposition ourselves based on what happened that day and what needed to happen the next day. And we would uh, then start a second day about 7, and that day would usually carry forward to about 1 or 2. And we did that for really from the October to the, through the trial. Uh, many of us would go thirty to forty days without going home and seeing our families. But that's what it took. Wow!
2: Yeah. Wow! Uh,
0: and we had lawyers walking into depositions with a bowl of cereal from the kitchen and uh, <laughs> eating dinner. It was crazy, uh, but it worked. So um, we also had the state of Oklahoma's state folks were incredible. The AG's office was incredible. Um, you know, a lot of times when you get state employees, they're paid to work nine to five. Um, they're not paid to work these kind of hours, but attorney general's folks, um, who were on the team, including his general counsel, uh, Abby Dilsaver worked crazy hours and the state agents, um, especially, uh, the commissioner of mental health, Terry White, uh, dedicated the better part of two years to getting this case ready for trial. That was a, Crazy effort. You wow. compare that to the the defendants who, probably, I'm guessing, just the ones we saw had 150 lawyers. Um, right. I'm guessing there were probably more than 500 all in. <clears throat> this really was the the battle line for the whole nation. So
2: yeah. Absolutely. Well, and your explanation now makes me understand um, why it seemed so impossible to get through so much information. And that's because <laughs> hearing what you all did is just really, I mean, that's tremendous.
0: Man, we put people on a trial. We didn't even know what they were going to say half the time. <laughs> when, you're, when you're a defendant, and their experts are willing to lie under oath. I guess it doesn't matter what the discovery is. Right, right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> But that's why it's that's why it's so important to work the documents the way you guys did because then when they do come up there and lie, then you've got the documents to hold it to them.
0: Hold, well, like like many folks in our business, um, I have a team of younger lawyers who are fearless and very hardworking, and we're a very close group. I'll tell you all a story. It's a great story. Um, one of the key witnesses in this case was a man by the name of Russell Portnoy, who was uh, a defendant's Um, key opinion leader who went out for years and talked to people about the safety of these drugs. And we took his deposition um, in Connecticut and it ended, it was a blizzard. It ended at like 10 30 or 11 at night. And the way these defendants do it is they compartmentalize their defense. And they have folks all over the country that come in and bits and pieces, but they really never know what's going on in the trial. So the next day, uh, and by the way, this, this witness blamed Purdue, Jansen, and Teva for causing the opioid crisis, even though he had been their key opinion leader for years. So the next morning, we started depositions. I, I was in uh, New Jersey at J&J's headquarters. We had another one in Oklahoma deposing Teva, and another one with, with Purdue simultaneously.
2: Wow. One of them
0: had talked to the folks that were in that room the night before when I got this witness to turn on the industry. And so the first five minutes of every deposition the next day was who is this guy? And is he trustworthy, credible, honest, and the number one expert in the world? Right. And all of a sudden, well, yeah, he is. He's great. He's honest. He's trustworthy because none of the lawyers in the deal knew what had happened the night before.
2: Oh my gosh. So
0: we could have stopped the case probably then. Um, And nobody had ever heard his testimony until we, we put it on in trial and, and, it's pretty hard to run from a guy that not only you paid for 20 years, but your witnesses a month before trial said, oh, yeah, he's the most credible, trustworthy guy we know.
2: Right. <laughs> oh, my gosh.
0: And so that was what i say of kind of a breathing organism. We, we were always together, and so we all knew what had happened minute to minute. Uh, it's a real, real advantage, and I think a lot of good trial firms do it that way.
1: Yeah, and I, 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 sh- I should also, uh, if you go to uh, Brad's website at nixlaw dot com, you can actually look up some of the uh, uh, videos at trial and a couple of them that I saw. Brad was uh, you cross examining, uh, I think it was one of the defense experts where he refused to use the word epidemic, wouldn't call it an epidemic, and you had a you had a YouTube video of him uh, that where he was giving a speech calling it an epidemic, saying he was re- he refused to uh, to. Uh, 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 prescribe opioids because it was such a problem.
0: So that's a great one. This gentleman, he's probably a very nice guy. He's very smart. His name's Tim Fong. He's out at UCLA, uh, which is where, you know, ironically, I use that word a lot in this, uh, J and J's lead lawyers work and Dr. Fong is an addiction treatment guy. And he showed up in our case. Um, I won't bore you with the details, but the expert discovery at the end of this trial was crazy. J and J and Purdue tried to take us to Supreme Court to stop our trial and they lost and we had to do expert depositions 20 something of them in like two weeks so the depositions were pretty short so when they were putting this fa fellow on a trial his his position was there was no epidemic addictions easy to treat and the defendants didn't cause it well while dr. Kolodny from our team was on the stand one of uh, my lawyers, Trey Duck, got on the internet and just dug down one weekend during trial. And he found this YouTube video where Fong had given a speech at a mental health hospital to a bunch of nurses and treaters. And he didn't say any of the things that were in his expert report. (laughs) He said, their addiction is terrible, there is an epidemic. And he said, you know why it happened? Greed. Just like the subprime crisis was caused by the mortgage and housing industry, the opioid crisis was caused by the pharmaceutical industry's greed, lying, and marketing telling us these drugs were safe when they weren't. Well, not only that, but in his program, he had lifted some presentations that Dr. Kalodney had done. And <laughs> just trying to gut Kolodny on the stand. so they had never seen this video, nor had they disclosed it to us. And we got it in in trial and we asked Dr. Claudney, you know, have you ever seen anybody out there who supports your view? And he's like, well, a lot of people. And I said, can you give me an example? And he said, sure. Tim Fong. Fong?" He said, well, it's their expert. And um, the objection (laughs) and what followed (laughs) from J and J was comical.
2: Oh my gosh.
0: That killed him. Well, what was really interesting is the, one of the lawyers, In J and J's side, they left and told the court that they had that he had to go back out to L.A. to be at a family uh, graduation. So when Tim Fong was getting put up on a stand, I was out working out that morning, and I walked in. I told my team, I said, "You know what? This guy was—I won't use his name—but this guy was not at a family deal. He was out rehabbing this witness. I know it. I can feel it in my heart." And he's going to be the one that puts him on tomorrow morning when they call him live. By the way, we were betting on whether they were going to call this guy live, but they really didn't have a choice. after.
1: Right. That.
0: Yeah. So sure enough, that lawyer put him on. So on his cross, I asked him where, when he had come up with some ideas where he was trying to rehab himself and they went nuts. And while the lawyer was lying to the judge about where he had been, simultaneously i asked the question to the witness and he told the judge that that lawyer had been out in la meeting with him going <laughs> over some new studies to rehab him so uh, it was that was a lot of fun
1: <laughs> yeah exactly well and it goes back to what we say on the show all the time that at the end of the day credibility is everything and once you've shot that you don't get it back
0: yeah and and j and Jay, their their local attorney is uh who did a lot of the trials a wonderful person a wonderful lawyer and a, and a friend of all of ours they would have really served themselves well to let him and his team try the case. But they parachuted commandos in at the last minute who didn't know the case. And um, I don't know that was always intentional, but boy, they, they had a hard time with the truth.
2: This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS.
1: Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked.
2: No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS.
1: Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts.
2: They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier.
1: They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by The Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up, and when you do, Mentioned the great trials podcast and that's legal technology services you can talk to bob melanie or anyone else on their team they are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com that's ltsatlanta.com well um well brad let's talk about this a little bit so as i mentioned at the beginning of the show this was not a jury trial this was a bench trial and so i want you to talk a little bit about the uh the difference is there, uh, you know, I, I've handled a, a number of Federal Tort Claims Act cases, so it, it's um, similar to those cases. But also I want to talk about that the, the theory you were going under was, uh, was a public nuisance law and that you, the remedy you were asking for was to abate the public nuisance. So talk about some of the um, evidentiary issues you had with proving a public nuisance and, and, and what you had to do to prove uh, in order to abate that and, and get the judge to award like I said, $572 million.
0: Yeah, that's a, a real issue in our case. And I'll try to make it as short and sweet as I can. But let me just <laughs> go back to what I just said. because I, I don't want to give the impression I'm talking bad about other lawyers. This, this lawsuit, just like we had to do a lot in a short period of time, so did the others. Right. And J&J's legal team uh, wasn't only defending J&J here. It's the NBL and a lot of other states. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that likely happened to them is you had, a, like I said, you had a lot of people parachute in, having to process a lot of information. And so you lose a lot of credibility when you come in and just get it wrong. Um, and also, to go back to a point from earlier, I, I made this comment about them still doing it. One of the most devastating things to, to me personally in this trial was everybody in the world who has any legitimacy admits that these drugs are addictive. Um, every government agency admits it, but as part of J and J's defense, they came in and tried to support the same studies they had relied on forever that pseudo addiction was real, that these drugs aren't really addictive. They're safe. It's a Mm -hmm. doctor's fault. And we attacked them in trial and closing and we'll do it until we die that that is so socially irresponsible That's like somebody coming in today and saying that cigarettes don't cause cancer, right? We all know it's not true. You can say you've been warned and you shouldn't smoke and you accept the risk, but you can't say that there's no harm that's going to come from smoking a cigarette. Right. And it's really, really shameful what they're doing. So to go back to your question about nuisance, it's, it's a lot more simple than it seems. There are States like Texas that to utilize a public nuisance law, Requires property be to be used; uh, it either occur on property or affect property. And all the defendants wanted to make that argument here, and they tried and failed. Our statute in Oklahoma does not talk about property; it talks about conduct. And so, it's very simple in Oklahoma: if you commit an act or omit to perform a duty, that Annoys, endangers, or affects the health and safety of a large community of others, then that can be a nuisance. Um, it doesn't require property. So that's what we alleged. But we also had an alternative theory, and the judge used it in his findings of fact. If by any means Oklahoma law did require property to be used, there's never been a situation where property was used more than here. The right. sales rep meetings happened in doctors' offices. The drugs were sold on property and in stores, pharmacies, used in homes, uh, addiction has occurred in homes, parks, hospitals, offices, everywhere in Oklahoma. They also used company-paid cars. They used our highways to carry out these uh, doctor visits. And we gotta admit it all. And I asked one of the sales reps, so when you were doing all this, were you floating in the air? And they just laughed at me. She was like, no, I was in a doctor's office. And I said, what was it attached to? She said, the ground. I said, so property. (laughs) Yeah, property. But we kind of cut through that, and pretty much Judge Burridge made in his part of closing was the, the weirdness or uniqueness of it was if you're actually gonna tie it to property, Property nuisance cases usually involve one piece of property. Here it was so pervasive it affected the entire state corner to corner. So we we felt like we covered both of those bases. Um, And in Oklahoma our statutes been on the book in one form or another for uh, over a hundred years. So it's not new, Uh, the judge didn't go out on a limb here he followed the black letter law that's been in existence forever. And you know the fact that it's never been applied to an opioid industry, uh, there's a reason for that. No one's ever been as callous and brazen as engaging in a 25-year campaign to tell people that one of the most addictive substances on earth isn't actually addictive. So you know it's that's what happened. Um, on the the money part, it's it's very interesting. You know our nuisance claim was prospective. Um, and it dealt with abatements. But there were no damages. Uh, the Attorney General wanted to focus on one thing, which was the fastest path to getting a remedy for the state and dealing with this crisis. So, public nuisance uh, with an abatement plan was was and remains the way to do that. Uh, we certainly could have gone to a jury trial with a damages case. I, I have no doubt we would <coughs> have punitive damages of a much, much higher number. Our egos certainly crave that, but our <laughs> right. job was not to make our resumes look better. It was to get relief to the state and the, the folks that need to use this money to help people.
2: What sorts of things did you do both to identify, I mean, with an epidemic like this, you know, either experts or, or, or whatever, what did you do both to identify what could be done abatement wise and then figure out how to, how to present that to the court.
0: Yeah. So, well, it's a there's a few layers to that question. Let me try to do it without rambling. So our partner in the case, Reggie Witten is a, just a wonderful human being. Uh, he lost his son, uh, Brandon, more than a decade ago to a opioid related car wreck. And Reggie started a group called FATE, F-A-T-E dot org. I would encourage, whoever might be listening to this, if you've got a family member dealing with it, Go to his website and he has, he talks about how lawyers play golf and have hobbies. And he said he has no hobbies. He just has hobbies with purpose. And his hobby is educating people. He has talked to by his count, probably 10,000 students in Oklahoma um, at his own expense. He goes and talks to the OU and OSU athletic teams four times a year. Um, He's helped so many people. And because of that, He's enlisted uh, re- or developed relationships with all of the leaders in the private and public sector in the state of Oklahoma, um, not the least of which is uh, a lady by the name of Terry White, who's the longest-serving commissioner of mental health in the country. She's an incredible woman, and her, I don't know to call it her number two, but right under her is uh, a lady by the name of Jessica Hawkins. So we had the mental health folks, a relationship with them um, that was already formed because everybody had a common mission um, to fix this problem before the lawsuit ever started. On top of that, through Edgy's work with Oklahoma State and the Attorney General's uh, work there, um, the head of the medical school, Casey Shrum, and had developed a wellness and recovery program, which is one of the only ones like it in the country. Uh, dealing with education and treatment of addiction from the medical school level. And so we had that already in place as well. And the third thing we had was General Hunter did something that very few others have done. He created an opioid commission and he brought in everybody, public, private sector, Republicans, Democrats, independents, business people, doctors, lawyers, you name it, and did a comprehensive year-long uh, leave no stone uncovered study of what was going on in Oklahoma and what had to be done to fix it. And before our lawsuit really ever got close to trial, I think the legislature unanimously passed six or eight pieces of legislation that came out of that opioid commission, really important stuff. And many others have been passed since then. So All of this was going on while we were prosecuting litigation. So when we would go to a state agent and say, hey, we need help, um, our experts, most of our experts came from within. They were unpaid, unretained state agents who were leaders in the field. And the entire country, if they want to learn how to solve the opioid crisis, the first thing they need to do is look at Commissioner White and Jessica Hawkins' plan that was developed with my partners, Jeff Angelovich and Lisa Baldwin and uh that is a roadmap that everyone at the federal and state level ought to look at and ought to adopt Uh, it is it is the way to fix this problem
2: wow well and that's fantastic because then you're you know as you alluded to you know it's not somebody that you're hiring it's not sort of this amorphous thing that you're you're saying that we can do it's already it's already in the works you've already got the people in place in the state to that are already trying to do these things
0: yeah. And, you know, the, the problem with it is that the state has a lot of things it has to provide for. And no one in their crystal ball ever sat down and said, we better figure out how to raise revenue to fix a problem caused by an opioid industry that made billions of dollars and left our state holding back. And one of the crazy things about this trial was I asked J and uh head person on the stand, you know, do you bear any responsibility for the opioid crisis? The answer was zero. Hmm. I said, y'all took a couple of billion dollars when you were exiting the industry, the paintball industry, uh, reported it as revenue, booked it. How much of that are you willing to help Oklahoma just voluntarily fix our problem? Answer, zero. Um, And when when General Hunter invited everyone to participate in this commission, J&J, Purdue, Teva, McKesson, all the distributors, none of them ever showed up. They were paying their lobby group, pharma phRMA, upwards of thirty million dollars a company annually to lobby to defeat us and defeat these cases around the country. What could be done if they put that money to proper use?
1: Yeah
0: um, and we challenged them, and they had no answers for it um, and I thought it was really interesting you know their their corporate representative shed a lot of tears during that case when she wasn't on the stand and she was listening to the moms and dads and the witnesses in the case. I looked over there and, and she, she shed a lot of tears. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know if it affected her personally in her own life or uh, guilt or what, but um, it was interesting, but they sure never stepped up to the plate to do anything. But I hope that answers your question, but yes. we got the roadmap. And one other thing I would say I'd encourage everybody to support, Uh, we had a man by the name of Gary Mendel who runs an organization called Shatterproof. Uh, Gary lost a son and, uh, he was, I, I won't say he was the founder of Starwood, but he was, he ran it for a while and really took Starwood hotels to the next level. He's dedicated his life, uh, since the death of his son to fixing this problem from a holistic business perspective, meaning I don't care who's to blame. I just want to fix it. He's worked with legislators uh, across, I think mean, he's got 13 states that passed legislation that he's been behind. He's worked with insurers on treatment and stigma reduction. Uh, and what he's done, he's met with the White House. He, he said, look, let's quit writing white papers about how to solve this problem. Let's just freaking solve it and get to it. And, you know, he, he's, he testified in our case and was really, really good. Um, and like our, like our abatement plan, he's got a lot of stuff on his website, a lot of leaders involved, that he's got a roadmap for how states and lo- local governments can fix the problem. Um, but you can design you know, I can go design you any house you want, but you gotta have the money to build it. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's where we are now.
1: And, and And I just want to make it clear to our listeners, so basically what the judge's award was is that you had this abatement plan uh laid out, and he basically funded that abatement abatement plan
0: that's correct. well, we have an abatement plan that showed what we needed over a course of many years, and he's funded it for one year right He's um, retained jurisdiction um, over how that money is utilized and we still have some post-trial proceedings with them about exactly what he intends to do on that.
1: Um, you mentioned that you had some of the um, uh, moms and dads and families come in. How many, uh, uh, you know, uh, victims of the opioid crisis came in and testified and, and uh, how, how did you handle those? Were those basically short and to the point on what had happened to their son or daughter, husband, wife?
0: You know, there were a little bit of, of everything. Um, we had a lawyer by the name of Craig box. His son, Austin, uh, was a star football player at OU, hurt his back, got prescribed opioids and, uh, right after he graduated, died. Parents had no idea it was even on him. Um, Craig was a short but powerful witness because not a lot needed to be said by him because everybody in that courtroom knew his story and his son's story. Um, and Terry White works with, uh, education around the state and and austin's a big part of her platform so she talked a lot about him as well um gary Mendel talked about his son and then we had a lady by the name of tanya radcliffe who's just a angel on earth she is a foster mom and biological mother of a total of 13 kids and she has three that she adopted that were born uh, nas opioid dependent um, and she runs a deal called Pepper's Ranch, which is pretty incredible, you ought to look it up. It's a, a place where uh, families can go and live in a rural setting in a, almost a farm-like community um, on scholarship, uh, and we have a foster crisis in the state of Oklahoma because not only are we losing folks to death who have children, but we're also losing folks who just aren't able to raise their children and the right. state has a major problem with that. So she was awesome. Uh, probably in my career may, may have been the most enjoyable witness I've ever put on just because of how much I admired her. And I, I wanted her to have a voice that, if nothing else, would inspire people to stand up and sacrifice and put themselves second, uh, which is what a lot of us do in our lives. She was awesome. Uh, we had a lady named Christy Hoos who was married to a, a doctor who hurt her back and became addicted, and one of her big pieces of testimony was that it can happen to your your doctor's wives either, even, them. But, um, but she had to go to Minnesota to get proper treatment to Betty Ford, and uh, she talked about the needs for full holistic health care uh, on the addiction treatment side in the state, and then and we had this other gentleman who uh, who was really incredible, uh, who went through our drug court programs. Uh, they pulled him out of jail and put him through the drug court system and he ended up becoming a pastor and, uh, just raising a family, just being, I mean, you talk about a one hundred and eighty uh, turnaround in his life. And so those were, I think our big five, uh, yeah. we could have done it for six months. We had, uh, moms and fathers from all of the country come and attend the trial just to ha- hope to, you know, to see somebody finally be held accountable. Um, I think there were a lot of family members disappointed that we settled with Purdue because I think a lot of folks wanted to see them get put under oath.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: But yeah, it was, we, these people laid themselves bare um, and none of them had a financial stake in the litigation, right? They, these weren't your typical plaintiffs. These were folks that, were embarrassed uh you know had a lot of their private lives brought out but they felt like they had to take a stand and let people know what had happened and how to fix it
1: yeah yeah absolutely
0: so awesome uh,
1: i i did want to ask you this uh you, you mentioned early on that one of your first witnesses called was this uh, uh dr Cortwright. Who is a historian and um I, i've never done that in a trial before where you basically just have somebody come in and sort of from a, a historical aspect lay out the the groundwork and i'm just wondering how uh how that went I, I saw that you referenced in your opening the the fact that you know he even talked about other countries uh, including china who had gone through an opioid crisis and it, which led to a civil war and essentially the downfall of their society at the time and um I just was interested in, to hear how, the, how, the, uh, how he came in and uh, was there objections by the defense in him in talking about the uh, h- historical aspects?
0: I would say there were objections, but that would be unfair to the word objections. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in a bench trial, and you guys have been through them, the, the rules are a little different because you don't have to worry about prejudice to a jury. The, the judge is going to see it anyway. And you don't usually have motions of we had two weeks of hearings on motions and limiting. Oh my God. Every single witness was challenged and they didn't, they challenged them as experts. Then they challenged them as we don't want to, you can't put on evidence of our national strategies because it didn't happen in Oklahoma. And then you can't put on evidence of our Oklahoma strategies because we didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Then they fought forever not to have this thing televised and their biggest argument was, not that it'd be prejudicial in this court, but it'd be prejudicial to potential downstream juries. So they fought like hell to not have Courtright testify. Um, he, he was really good in, in just setting the stage for what happened prior to 1996 and why this dam of cons, you know narcotic conservatism was important and how it broke down. We had another expert, you know, we had to cut a lot because the where we might cross a witness for an hour, J&J would do it for three days. And so we, we really cut into our time. Um, but we had a fellow by the name of Bill McAllister, who's from Oklahoma and who is, uh, I guess, the Secretary of State's division. Um, he's the foremost expert in the world on the political impact of opioids. And so he was the, fo- the guy that was really going to talk about the China issue. Um, but, but Courtright does it too. But the long and short of it is we're, we're going through a little bit of what China had happened. I mean, you, you can blame Mexican drug cartels. You can blame China for allowing fentanyl to come in here, um, which J and J did both of those, but no matter how you look at it, we've got a real bad problem and I don't know how it is where you guys are, but, uh, if you played six degrees of opioid addiction, you're going to find somebody that, you know, oh, yeah. um, that's <laughs> deeply impacted and it's not getting better. Um, so if we don't do something about it nationally, um, we're going to, I don't say we'll lose hope, but, it is a major problem. It impacts employment. It impacts the quality of employment. It impacts, you know, cost to states and insurers and private sector. Crimes up. It's bad. And you know now we've got the the outside influences showing up. Not really in Oklahoma, but on the East Coast. And you know the, this Pandora's box was opened by the pharmaceutical industry. And the big problem you have is that if we just said Take away opioids, we would have the biggest heroin outbreak in the history of the world. Right. Because you can't just cold turkey this stuff. Um, So we've got to treat. We've got to re-educate. We also have to take care of folks that have legitimate pain. And, you know, we've all been through procedures where, you know, an opioid for the right dosage or the right amount of time is perfectly appropriate. Um, But you shouldn't get a six-day supply for it getting your tooth pulled uh, or you know getting your gallbladder out um, but that's what happens so anyway i don't know if that answers your question but uh, it, i don't want to say I, I did tell the judge at one time that we we were on the precipice of you know financial run in the state of oklahoma as a result of this and, and i believe that to be true
1: no, I mean, it's obviously, it's a huge problem, not just in Oklahoma, but nationally. I mean, and it's, uh, it, it, it's something that um, you know, I'm glad to see these cases moving along. I, I should mention, you know, one thing I um, want to make sure I give you credit for, that you, you had a, um, a phrase that sort of captured, um, you know, what uh, the opioid manufacturers had done. And I thought it was a great phrase, but you, uh, your, your phrase was, if you oversupply, people die. Um, and I saw you mention that multiple times, but that's just sort of, uh, you know, a, a really good way to bring it home. I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, the, the, the Johnson & Johnson, you know, it, it is involved in so many different types of litigation, and it seems like they never take responsibility in companies like them. Where do you see this litigation going, and, um, and what do you think the, the future is about the opioid crisis? I know that's a deep question, but you've worked on it more than probably anybody else.
0: Yeah, so on the 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 catchphrase, you know, it's it's just true, and um, give credit where it's due. Uh, one of my team members, Trey, really brought that home. And when we decided to lead with that, we kept it under lock and key. There were only, uh, I think, two two people on our trial team that knew we were going to use it and use the graphics that we used. Uh, we did not want anybody to be able to to respond to it. Um, and I'm glad we used it because it's just true and it was very simple to understand. Um, you know, and it is, it is the root cause of the opioid crisis. You had an oversupply, people die. It's that simple. Um, where do we go from here? I, I, I'll say this, you guys are lawyers obviously. And I, I don't know who all listens to your, your show, but, but the way that we get justice is to hold these companies accountable I've settled a ton of cases. Usually I don't have to try them because we we prepare our cases the right way and we get very, very good results. But there are just some times where getting it out in the public and having a confirmation about the conduct of issue is the most important thing. And if we allow these companies to hide, um, the problem not only will it not solve itself, but it will repeat itself in some other form. So, you know, right now we have uh, the the a few counties in this federal MDL in Ohio. My guess is most of that will get resolved um, because I know they don't. They're doing what tobacco did in our case. They just filed a motion to mandamus uh, the court, and I'm sorry to recuse the judge. Right? Yeah. It's not fair because he's actually letting a trial go forward. But um, you know, hopefully, some part of that will go to trial and will win. I'm sure that. You know, some of these cases wind up in wins for the industry because venue matters. You know, for example, a North Dakota trial judge, amazingly enough, threw out their case and said that they didn't, didn't have a case against Purdue of all entities. Hmm. Uh, imagine if our judge had done that. Uh, you know, just imagine with no discovery, turn it into a summary judgment motion. So, you know, to me what's going to happen – I, I think a lot of lawyers got into this litigation thinking there was going to be an easy payday um, for their clients and for them, and that's just not what's happening here. Uh, this is such a complex problem with so many stakeholders that to do it right, you just can't go and settle cheaply. We saw the feds do that with Purdue in 2007, and People should have gone to jail. More money should have been paid. Neither of those happened and it just kept going. Um, so we, we've got to have some lawyers that are courageous enough to take this thing all the way against J&J a few more times against some of these other folks that are involved. But we also have to have some judges that have courage. Um, if judges will just trust the system, let the facts get to them or let the facts get to a jury, the facts are undeniable. And and more importantly than just getting to a jury and a verdict is getting this evidence out there so that policymakers and educators can see the truth. You know, it's very hard to get a doctor to come in under oath and say, look, I issued a prescription when I shouldn't have done so. I mean, think about that that may submit them to a false claims violation. It may submit them to malpractice or criminal charge. They're just not gonna say it. But wouldn't it be great if those doctors could see the evidence about how they were lied to and preyed upon and victimized themselves in private because it'll make everybody rethink how this works going forward. But so that's right. my goal. Um, and somehow state government <clears throat> governments have got to figure out, no matter what the industry pays and And damages and remedial uh, benefits it's going to fall short of what's needed so um, none of the states asked for this problem but we sure have have to deal with it
1: absolutely well um, uh, i mean this has just been tremendous work i mean it's it and it's extremely important work i mean all the cases that we talk about are important but this one i i think is just at the forefront of national attention and um and and i agree with you that it's uh something that needs to be uh worked on aggressively or else it's just going to get worse um brad we really have appreciated your time um we've been going more than an hour and and uh, and i feel like there's still a, a bunch of other things to talk about is there any is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners know about the uh about the case um, the uh, state of Oklahoma versus Johnson and Johnson and Janssen Pharmaceuticals, um, or about the litigation that uh, that we haven't talked about.
0: No, I appreciate all giving us a platform, and I I just want to encourage. I'm guessing most of your listeners are lawyers, and I'm sure that Johnson Johnson and some of the folks that may be trying cases will find out we did this and listen to it. <laughs> uh, I, I've,
1: I've definitely been told by a number of uh, my friends on the defense side that uh, that they listen to the podcast. So I, yeah, I, I know so, they're out there.
0: <laughs> so I would say to Johnson & Johnson um, and anybody out there, anytime they want to do this again, we'll, we'll go meet Johnson & Johnson head on in any forum, anywhere, and we'll win again. Um, and I want to encourage the extent our trial judge or any judges uh, in any case, listen to this, uh, just tell, you know, courts, cause we don't always get to speak to them directly, but it is so important that you let litigants develop discovery and get through the facts so that you can prove a case. So many times the truth never gets out there uh, because you just don't get the fair opportunity to do it. Our court here worked tirelessly and he appointed a wonderful discovery master, um, you know, and in the state court system, you don't have law clerks, as you guys know, like the federal system, they, they worked and their staff worked incredibly hard and there's no harm in letting the facts get out there. I mean, I, I right. know that most trial courts try to keep their minds open until they hear the evidence, but you can't make a fair decision unless you hear all the evidence. And in this case, that's what happened. He let both sides, have all the time they wanted, both sides present all their experts. No one was excluded and that's the way to do it. So, you know, I, I appreciate that. And I sure hope that, um, other lawyers out there will have the courage to just, you know, say enough is enough and take these to trial. And then about the trial, uh, thanking my team for all the hard work. And I would encourage you guys to go look at, uh, the waffle cone
1: incident that was a pretty fun uh, yeah I, sh- I did see that uh, so uh, one of the, I, I guess i should tell our listeners about that that um that one of the points that uh, that j and j i think was trying to make was that uh, j- the the fact that you know there were more uh, opioids being uh, supplied and the fact that the you know deaths had gone up you know didn't mean the two were related, and they were using this example of the fact that uh, during summertime months, uh, ice cream sales go up, and so do murder rates, and so therefore, ice cream causes murder. And uh, and if you go on to uh, to Brad's website at nixlaw.com, there's a video of Brad uh, where he pulls out a, a a waffle cone and fills it up with uh look like oxycodone or opioids or something like that and uh, and thought just made a very effective point of it
0: well i had a mentor long ago say he never went into court without a prop and we had a case where there was a, a name given to an investment vehicle called a scheme do which is a, if i remember i right, had a scottish boot knife so i'm sitting in a federal courtroom and i look down and this dude has a boot <laughs> knife strapped to his leg which he whipped out in the argument 20 something years ago and it was awesome so uh, (laughs) I'm a big I hand it up as much as I can get away with because we all get bored oh yeah now. but so on that one my daughter came up to intern uh with a friend she's going to college and wants to go to law school and uh we were walking across the street the night before that hearing and they had an ice cream store and I just it popped in my head so we went in and got us a waffle cone (laughs) and Used it in trial, so it was fun. But uh, I asked Jay and J if at their – this was the this was on the 7th of July. I asked them if when they had been back in uh, New Jersey at their 4th of July parties, had they served up Oxycontin in the right. law firm.
2: They
0: didn't like it. They don't like it. They sure don't like us and our law firm. Right. But they'll get over it.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I I am a big proponent of you using uh using demonstratives and using uh props at trial. I mean especially in the long trials, uh you gotta you gotta keep it lively and you gotta keep it uh, uh interesting for everybody
0: in the court. Well, if we if we try some more of these against J and J, we'll have uh hopefully, I got some other ideas. I hope the courts will let us. <laughs> right.
2: I can't I can't wait. I gotta get there in person <laughs> next time.
0: Well, you That's need right. to get more exciting things going on in your life than uh <laughs> so, true. It <laughs> so true so true
1: Oh, man. Well, Brad, uh, listen, we really appreciate your time. I want to remind our listeners, we've been talking about the case of the state of Oklahoma versus Johnson & Johnson, Janssen Pharmaceuticals. It was tried in Cleveland County, Oklahoma. Uh, The result was a $572 million award against Johnson & Johnson. And we've been talking to Brad Beckworth. Uh, Brad is a partner at Nix Patterson in Austin, Texas. And um, you can look up Brad at nixlaw.com. That's N-I-X-law.com. Brad, thank you so much for your time.
0: Hey, love it. Uh, let me know if I helped you guys with
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury,
1: have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to The Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with, or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be Hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
2: Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right? Exactly.
1: <laughs> we only need a uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
2: we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google play or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We,
1: we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast On The Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again.
2: Thank you for listening.